When I was 17, I had spinal fusion surgery. I had a metal rod put in my spine to prevent my scoliosis from worsening. And so I went from this healthy, active volleyball player, supposed to play at Duke the following year, to lying in a hospital bed, unable to walk. And during that time of rehabilitation, you know, I was all alone, very afraid, and I didn't have any tools to cope. And so that was kind of what started the journey into mindfulness. Hi, and welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm Sam Stern. Today our guest is Shauna Shapiro, an internationally recognized expert in mindfulness, author of the books The Art and Science of Mindfulness, as well as Mindful Discipline. Shauna has been invited to lecture for the King of Thailand, the Danish government, the Prime Minister of Iceland, the World Council of Psychotherapy, among many, many others. Today she's with us discussing how she has used the scientific perspective on mindfulness as a path to greater compassion and greater peace and to become a better parent. I truly enjoyed exploring Shauna's work and her story. She has a palpable generosity of spirit and authenticity. So with no further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Shauna Shapiro. And so then I went to Duke University and started studying psychobiology and psychoneuroimmunology. And all of the focus was on thinking happy thoughts. And it was it was where the research was showing that when you think negative thoughts, you get kind of cancer in your immune system. And I was terrified because here I was, you know, a year post spinal fusion surgery, not very happy, probably somewhat depressed, very afraid, alone. And then I'm he- researching and hearing that if I think negative thoughts or I'm depressed, I'm going to get cancer. Mm. It, was, it was awful. And so that's when I discovered mindfulness. And mindfulness had this approach where it was like, everything's welcome. Your sadness, your loneliness, your fear, your joy, your love, it's all part of the human experience. And what mindfulness does is gives you this way of holding it all Mm. with your loving awareness. And so all of a sudden, it was okay to feel how I felt. And I had tools to be with it, to be with the physical pain of my back, to be with the emotional pain of feeling lonely or like I was damaged. And um, it kind of started me on this journey. So I eventually went to Thailand and um, went to my first meditation retreat. And it was that experience that helped me realize this is what I wanted to devote my life to, not just personally, but also kind of to study it scientifically. Were you in college when you had uh, when you traveled to Thailand to take part in the retreat? I'd, I left college a little bit early. So I was at Duke and my best friend said, come travel with me. I'm going trekking in Nepal and we can stop by Thailand because I know you like meditation. <laughs> So we went and we trekked in Nepal, which was amazing because I hadn't done any serious strenuous exercise since my surgery, but I was able to somehow do this. And then we went to Thailand and we got it in our minds to try to find this hidden uh, temple under a waterfall. And so we were on this motorcycle and we're driving around this island. My friend was driving because I was way too scared. And we find this waterfall and we climb down these slippery stairs and we get down there and there's this monk and he's like, invites us to come meditate. So we sit and we're meditating. And I hadn't meditated much in my life at that point. And I'm sitting there and I can feel the monk's consciousness. And then I feel this shared consciousness and I feel our consciousness expanding. And I feel the greatest sense of ease that I felt since my surgery. Mm. And really since in my life, it was the sense I felt whole and connected again. And the bells rang and I opened my eyes and my friend is pointing at her watch. She's like, it's been over an hour. And it felt like a single moment. And as we're leaving, the monk said, keep practicing, 
keep practicing. So from that point on, I kind of just wanted to meditate all the time because it, while it's challenging, it's very challenging and my mind wandered off a million times and it was frustrating, the sense of ease and connection and the sense that I wasn't alone um, was so powerful that it kind of propelled me forward. Yeah, when I came back to America, I, I wanted to study mindfulness scientifically. I wanted to understand what I'd experienced. So that's when I began a PhD program and why I became a professor and really have spent almost 20 years researching mindfulness and looking at who is it helpful for it and what ways and how do we best teach it and how do we make it accessible so it's not this Buddhist practice, but it's this universal human capacity. And so you take a kind of a scientific perspective uh, into mindfulness that that will separate you from some of the teachers who who come at it from more of a... Like, Spiritual approach. Or, yeah. Yeah. I feel like mindfulness is an innate human capacity, that it doesn't, it's not part of any one religion. It's part of all religions. It's part of all spirituality. It's, it's really part of all the wisdom teachings, you know, for the millennia. It's what I've tried to do with the science is make it really digestible and accessible to anyone so that I can teach my son who has no interest in Buddhism or religion. And I can teach my 85 year old grandfather, Mm. you know, who's never meditated in his life. And I can work with CEOs of corporations and I can work with physicians and nurses and with women with breast cancer and veterans with PTSD. You know, it, it, for me, mindfulness is this, um, this awareness that we all have, and it's about remembering that awareness and trusting it. And so it's not like something we have to go out and get mm. or make happen. It's about kind of softening back into the truth of who we are. Mm. So do you kind of push away consciously from the word spiritual? What, like, what is your engagement? You <laughs> you grew up Jewish, right? I I was raised, well, my father was Buddhist, my mother was Protestant, and yet they both have Jewish blood in their family. And so when I was 11, my mom decided she wanted us to have one shared religion in the family. So my brother and sister and I all became Jewish kind of overnight. We stopped having Christmas trees. I, I was, you know, I was 11, so I kind of missed Christmas and rebelled a bit. But I started Hebrew school. I started Sunday school. I got bat mitzvah. I got confirmed. I went to Israel. I lived on a kibbutz. And... So I actually identify very much as being Jewish, uh-huh. even though I'm not, you know, kind of traditionally Jewish. Um, and what's been interesting is that it, the the Jewish and Buddhist um, teachings are very similar. And so for me, mindfulness, I, I see it across all religions. And, and so when I'm teaching, I don't identify with any religion. I really try to make it um, religion-free, culture-free, even context-free. But personally... I think mindfulness helps us deepen connection with whatever our larger truth is for whatever it is for anyone. Yeah, yeah. But there's a lot of overlapping themes between Judaism and Buddhism. Mm. You know, even Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are coming up. I think tonight is the first night. And this holiday is all about forgiveness. And it's, you know, in Buddhism and in mindfulness, a lot of the practices are around forgiveness Mm. and compassion Mm. and letting go and freedom. And so... I love seeing the parallels, and yet when I teach, I really focus on making it accessible and digestible, and I find that spirituality is digestible for some people and not for others. It's a turnoff for, for some. It can be. It's a pull push. And especially I'm a professor, and I'm in academia, and I'm at academic conferences all the time, and so I've worked really hard on separating myself from spirituality and religion in my work and in my teachings. Yeah. 
Well, let's talk a little bit about compassion. Why is compassion so aligned with mindfulness and meditation? Maybe you could speak about it from a neurobiological perspective. Yeah. It's actually really interesting. So, So mindfulness is often defined as present moment attention. So basically just like as an attentional practice. Mm. And a lot of the um, cognitive neuropsychologists have focused on this definition. And yet when you look at the original teachings of mindfulness, it's not just about attention. It's about how we pay attention, our attitude. So mindfulness is really this loving attention or this kind attention. In fact, even if you look at the um, Japanese kanji for mindfulness, it's composed of two characters. And one of the characters means presence. And the bottom character, shin, means heart or mind. So mindfulness could have been translated as heartfulness. And so this this kind of compassionate, loving attitude is essential to mindfulness. And I think the reason it's so important, especially in the West, is we carry so much shame. This sense of, I'm not good enough, I'm not living this life right, I'm not okay. And from a neurobiological perspective, what shame does is it shuts down the learning centers of the brain. So shame actually, what happens when we feel shame is the amygdala triggers this cascade of norepinephrine and cortisol to flood our system. It shuts down the learning centers and it shuttles our resources to survival pathways. Mm. So we're in fight, fight, flight, or freeze. We we can't learn. We can't grow. We can't change. Mm. And so when we're paying attention in a critical, judgmental, harsh way with mindfulness, all we're doing is practicing judgmentalness and frustration and impatience. And so the reason I make it so explicit, this compassion piece, is that as we practice mindfulness, it's essential that we learn to hold our experience with kindness. Mm. And if we actually want to change parts of ourselves, we all have parts of ourselves that aren't so golden, right? We have to bring kind attention because first of all, it's too painful to look at those parts of ourselves unless we're being kind, right? Whereas the parts that we're ashamed of, we don't want to see, we want to ignore and hide from them. And secondly, kindness actually induces the body into a state of learning. It bathes us with dopamine. So it turns on the learning centers of the brain and gives us the resources we need to change. And so that's why mindfulness, it's not just about paying attention, it's about this kind attention. So what do you um, continue to get out of mindfulness and meditation? You've been practicing for, is it, is it 20, 20 years? 20 years, yeah. I mean, I'm just thinking, is there a point at which you have you've garnered enough of the, you've, you've learned compassion, you can give yourself self-compassion. I imagine there, there is progress that's made, right, from doing it continually. Like, right, please tell please. me that you've made a little progress. I absolutely, yes, mm-hmm. and it's a practice, and perfection isn't possible, right? It's just not possible. Mm-hmm. I'm always learning and growing, and I believe that we're transforming in every moment based on where we put our attention. And so mindfulness has... One, it's really helped me heal from my back surgery. It's helped me come back into my body and be more present because for many, many years after my surgery, I was completely disembodied. You know, I there's this quote from James Joyce. He says, Mr. Duffy lived a short distance from his body. And as soon as I read that, I was like, that's me. You know, like I don't even feel my body. I like walk around from my, you know, just all in my head. And, you know, when I was at university and in graduate school, I was very focused on the mental, you know, training my mind and, and, so mindfulness has helped me come back into my body and, and start to feel safe there again and be more alive and present. Mm. Because when you're mental, a lot of times it's about the future and the past. And when you're in your body, you're in the present moment. You're right here. 
And and then also the, the kindness, the compassion piece. I mean, I wish I could say that I don't feel any shame or self-judgment now that I practice mindfulness, and that's not true. But what is true is that these pathways of kindness and compassion are established in me, and I, I know that I'm growing them mm. every day. Mm. And, you know, there's moments of more kindness. You know, so the other day I, I walked into this really sharp... Uh, table. Actually, I think it was down in the lodge. <laughs> and instead of being like, oh, you klutz, you're such an idiot. I was like, oh, oh, sweetheart, that hurts. You know, and just those little moments of being kind. Mm. I was wondering if you could speak to the importance of the prefrontal cortex as it pertains to meditation. Yeah. So the prefrontal cortex is a really important part of the brain. And just to help describe it, um, if you make a fist, so you can go ahead and make it with me. So you put your thumb in the middle and then you put your fingers wrap over it. So the brain stem is this interior part. And then the thumb is like the amygdala, which has to do with our emotions. And then the prefrontal cortex folds over it. The prefrontal cortex was the most recently developed part of the brain. And this is where our moral reasoning, our higher order learning, our emotional intelligence resides. And so what happens in meditation is you're strengthening these pathways in the prefrontal cortex and their connections to other parts of our brain and our system. What happens when we get stressed is the prefrontal cortex comes disconnected. It's called flipping your lid, according to Dan Siegel. That's his little colloquial term for it. So we flip our lid and all of a sudden we're acting out of our more reptilian brain, you know, kind of on automatic pilot, very fight or flight. And what mindfulness and meditation helps us do is strengthen these parts of the prefrontal cortex so that we have more resources available to cope with difficult situations. And so what they find is that the parts of the prefrontal cortex that have to do with positive emotions, being alert, feeling vital and optimistic, grow bigger or stronger, and have more activation than the parts um, associated more with depression, anxiety, or um, negative emotions. So traditionally in psychology, we have this happiness set point where kind of like a weight set point, like we're only going to be this, this happy. And it was based on research that shows that if you win the lottery, you get really happy for short term. And then one year later, you're back to your baseline. Mm. If you get in a horrible accident and you become a paraplegic, you get really sad. But then one year later, you're back to your baseline. Wow. Right. It's shocking. And yet they've replicated this research over and over again. So the the kind of theory was that we are born with a certain level of happiness and we can't really do much to change it. You know, you win the lottery, you marry the perfect person, you get the house in Hawaii. One year later, you go back to baseline. You know, you get in a horrible accident or you get divorced or something bad happens. One year later, you go back to your baseline. So this is great news if you're born happy. It's like you're like a Bobo doll. You know, life knocks you down, you pop back up and you're like, whoop, it's Okay. But if you're born depressed, which most of the people I work with as a psychologist, this is terrible news because like, wait a minute, no matter what I do, I'm going to go back to this horrible baseline of depression. And so the reason that this research with, with meditation is so hopeful is it's one of the first things that show we can shift our level of happiness by actually through an interior practice that actually changes the both the activity and structure of our brain, that we can, you know, happiness can be trained this is from Richie Davidson. He says, happiness can be trained because the very structure of our brain can be modified. And so what he's talking about is neuroplasticity, that what we practice grows stronger. Our repeated experiences shape our brain. And what happens with mindfulness is we can actually shape our brain and groove these pathways towards greater happiness and greater ease and greater generosity. 
because what we practice grows stronger. And that's why when we practice mindfulness, it's so important to practice this kind awareness. Because if I'm sitting here practicing judging myself, like, oh my God, your mind wandered off again and you're terrible at this and you're a bad meditator, and then all I'm doing is growing the pathways of self-judgment. And so as we're practicing mindfulness, we notice our mind wanders off and we're like, oh, interesting, bring it back. It's what the mind does. There's nothing wrong with me. And in that way, we can start to grow these pathways of compassion. So what would you um, give as advice for people who are totally brand new to meditation? What would you, how would you say? So if, imagine somebody's yeah. listening to this talk and they're like, that sounds pretty amazing. Um, I've never sat before, never gone to a talk, never read any books. Mm. First, I say welcome. <laughs> I think the most important thing is to connect with your intention for why you would even want to start. So if you're sitting here right now and you're thinking about starting a meditation practice to reflect on why is this important? Because really you want to set the compass of your heart in the direction you want to head. What is my intention? Why is this important to me? Once you find your intention, that helps to motivate you and it gives you energy to begin the practice. And then beginning the practice, the first thing to know is it's not going to be perfect. Your mind's going to wander off. That's okay. You bring it back. And to, from this place of deep motivation, begin practicing and make a commitment to yourself, even if it's just for five minutes. Make a commitment that you know you can do. Because I think one of the most difficult things is we set these intentions. We're like, I'm going to meditate an hour a day. I just heard that it's good for your brain and good for your happiness. And then, you know, a day or two goes by and we don't do it and we break the commitment. And there's something about being trustworthy to yourself. So what I tell all my patients when we're beginning a meditation practice is first reflect on why, why you're here. Mm -hmm. Do this for yourself, not for me. And it's fine. You know, some people come to me and they're having panic attacks. We work with, my intention is to reduce anxiety and reduce panic attacks. So it doesn't have to be some big lofty, I want to be enlightened. Finding your intention and then making a commitment to whatever is most doable. So even if it's, let's say I'm going to meditate 10 minutes a week, you know, make it something that you know you can do and then you can feel good that you kept your commitment to yourself. I also strongly recommend finding a teacher or a book or, you know, CDs or some kind of audio support because, well, this is from Anne Lamott. She's one of my favorite authors. She says, the mind is like a dangerous neighborhood. You don't want to go there alone, <laughs> right? And so I think it's important to have support so that when you're sitting and meditating, and you're like, oh, I'm terrible at this. I shouldn't be doing it. Someone can say, oh, no, everyone feels like they're terrible. Mm. Our mind wanders 47% of the time. On average, every single person. So when your mind's wandering, don't feel bad. It's what it, it's what it does. Just bring it back. And so I think setting your intention and then finding some kind of support to help you along this path. Mm -hmm. And then we have so many resources these days. It's, um, we're living in a time where it's very accessible. You mentioned your, your patients. Do you, do you use meditation within the psychotherapeutic context? I do. I do. I'm a clinical psychologist, and I've worked with a lot of different patient populations uh, when I first began my training, I spent five years at a cancer center, and I worked mostly with women with breast cancer, and I taught them mindfulness meditation. And back then, it was a little bit strange, you know? Everyone was like, well, what are you doing? Um, and, and that's actually why I did the research, because when people asked, what are you doing? I said, well, we're going to find out, and we're going to see if it's helpful. And one of the first papers I published was looking at the effects of mindfulness meditation for women with breast cancer on their immune functioning, on their sleep quality, on their quality of life, and showing that it was really beneficial. And what was interesting about that study is what we found is that there was a threshold of five minutes per day. If you did more than five minutes a day, 
you saw results. Mm. You know, and I, I kind of am hesitant to tell people that because, you know, I, I, I suggest people meditate a little bit more than five minutes a day, but even to five minutes a day made a difference. So I, I definitely use it in my clinical practice. In fact, I'd say that's my theoretical orientation is mindfulness. Yeah. There's a whole psychotherapy field now around it. And in, in the graduate school I teach at Santa Clara University, I train therapists in mindfulness. That's what we focus on. Yeah, it's it's super fascinating to me uh, I, because within that psychotherapeutic context, I think there's a pretty um, set sense of self. It's about me and my story hmm. and what has happened. And I don't think that's in direct opposition with the way that you've approached um, mindfulness, but it kind of is with um, some of the Buddhist orientation towards mindfulness and meditation, which is about escaping that sense of self and, and such cer- a good point certainly not like re- yeah. reifying it yeah it's it's a really important point i mean i think there's a couple responses i have to that first is i believe a lot of people um can use spiritual practice and mindfulness and meditation to escape the self and they kind of they transcend it um, but they don't really work through all the, the kind of issues that they have. And I think then they come back to bite them. So I think how I use mindfulness practice is first to kind of get the self a little bit healthy <laughs> and, and start to kind of invite all the parts of it. And then to begin to soften our attachment to self so that we begin to see um, kind of our egocentric perspective, mm-hmm. and then we're able to transcend that and see a more holistic perspective. Mm-hmm. And we start to see how isolated we feel and then recognize how interdependent we are. And so I think we need to meet people where we are. And mindfulness can be really helpful along a lot of different stages um, and, and stages of evolution. And so with my clients and my patients who I work with, usually we begin with the suffering, their individual suffering that they're having, whether they're facing cancer or post-traumatic stress disorder or anxiety, we stay there. And as they continue to practice, they have their own realizations where they start to, wow, I feel like I'm bigger than just myself or there's something. Or they start to recognize, wow, I really am sensing other people and I feel greater empathy that it just kind of naturally arises as we start to pay attention in this kind way. Yeah. I mean, there's a kind of magic in the, in the meditation process. And it seems like you're adding that towards the, the more concrete give and take between client and therapist. There's a lot of research right now focusing on what are the potential pitfalls of meditation mm-hmm. and what are the um, possible inadvertent negative consequences. So I think it's an important question to ask because I don't want to just be like, oh, it's a cure-all and it's good for everyone. I think we need to be nuanced in how we use it. Personally, I haven't had any adverse reactions. However, I haven't used mindfulness with every single one of my patients. Right. I'm, I'm um, sensitive to who it might be a good fit for. You know, originally, I remember when I was first doing the research, they, the kind of guiding theory was that we shouldn't introduce meditation or mindfulness to people who have dissociative disorders or PTSD or, um, you know, schizophrenia, because it might even loosen their grip with reality more mm. because you can go into an altered state of consciousness. But now they're finding that that mindfulness is extremely effective for PTSD. And and I had one client that, that I worked very closely with who had um, schizophrenia, where it was actually really helpful to help ground him in his body and in the present moment reality and to notice the, you know, the splits and the different voices as... Um, just one one experience in this whole spectrum of experience. Mm. So 
again, I don't think we have all the answers and I don't think mindfulness is a cure-all. And I think we have to be really um, refined and rigorous in the questions we're asking and to have an open mind. Yeah. You mentioned earlier the the study that you did with the women who um, had breast cancer. I'm curious about some of the other studies that you've uh, undertaken. Yeah. So, well, my first research, this was back in 1997, I, this is my very first study, and I had gone to my doctor. Um, I was in graduate school, and I went to my doctor, and because I had some abnormal tests, he said, I think that you have a tumor in your pituitary, and you might not be able to have children. And I was like 22 years old. And that was all he said to me, and then he just like left. He's like, go get an MRI, you know, like, and come back in three weeks. And I went home, and I was, I remember crying hysterically every day. I called my mom you know, was terrified. And then it turned out I was fine three weeks later. But those three weeks, I was like, I'm never gonna have children. I might have to have brain surgery. And so I had this idea that I wanted to teach mindfulness to physicians and I wanted to help them be more empathic. And so we did a research study um, with 70 medical students. And, you know, looking back, I can't believe I did this because again, I was 22 or 23. It's my first year of graduate school. I didn't have really any formal training in mindfulness. and I taught this program, this elective course with 70 students. And what we found is that, you know, eight weeks later, they improved their empathy levels. And then we studied them two months later compared to the, the waitlist group who didn't get any mindfulness. And even during their exam periods, they had greater empathy and compassion. Wow. And right, it was, this, it was this incredible, I now know that research doesn't always work that way, but it was one of those like perfect studies with the perfect result and the perfect, you know, got it published right away. And um and that's really when I got interested in doing research. Okay. And I was like, okay, this can answer questions and this can actually help people and this can make changes in areas where we see there's need. Mm. Um, and it has so, a powerful legitimizing um, force behind it too. It does. And it makes, what it does is it opens doors and opens minds and opens hearts in a way that nothing else I've seen can. Mm. And so, you know, if I was just a meditation teacher, I, I couldn't go and introduce this in the way that I can now. So using my PhD and being a professor, I get access to different groups that that then can make their own decision whether or not they agree with the teachings, but at least they're listening. Yeah. And I think that's what the science does. So I've spent most of my career actually, I thought I was going to be a clinical psychologist and just work with patients all the time, but most of my career has been doing research and teaching and you know, I've I've published over 150 journal articles and book chapters, which is not something I thought I'd be doing. I was not a research person, but I see how important it is to study this in a rigorous way and then to share the results mm-hmm. because that's how changes are made. That's how policy changes are made. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that is really absolutely fascinating. I mean, one of the questions that I had prepared for you was, oh, it seems that meditation is in vogue. In it's a certain right extent, <laughs> right now, and I was going to say, well, why is that? Yeah. You know, but it, it almost seems like you've spoken to that with people doing work like you and John Cabot Zinn with mindfulness-based stress reduction. Mm-hmm. You're speaking to such a, a larger part of the population than those who might just be into the spiritual. Um, right. Th- that would be their doorway. Yeah, I think that John John Cabot Zinn really is a pioneer, and I'm so grateful to him. He was one of my very first teachers. And what he did was he made it accessible and he made it non-Buddhist and he made it applicable. Like 
yeah, this is going to help you in rush hour traffic, and this is going to help you with your kids at home, and this is going to help you when you're stressed out at work. This is going to help you with your physical pain that nothing else is helping with. And he was so brilliant and so generous in the way he developed mindfulness-based stress reduction and offered it out freely. And, you know, I when I was first learning about mindfulness, it was through his book, Wherever You Go, There You Are. My dad had given it to me. And I read the book and I was like, this is all I want to do. It was right after my back surgery. And I was like, this is it. Like, this, this is amazing. And I wrote John a letter while I was living in Israel. I wrote him on the, one of those air mail, you know, those things that folds up. An aerogram. Yeah, an air, yeah. I wrote him, I was, I was in Israel and I'm sitting there and I'm like, you know, dear Dr. Kabat-Zinn, you know, my name's Shauna. <laughs> and I just read your book and, oh my God, this is what I do. I want to do with my whole life. And, you know, I'm in college and I'm in Israel on a study abroad program and just thank you. And he wrote me back. <laughs> you know, he wrote me back and he said, I'm so delighted to hear from you. When you get back to America, why don't you come and do the mindfulness-based stress reduction training? We'd love to have you. And then he included this poem by Derek Walcott that is called Love After Love. And it's all about learning to love yourself again. And I still have the poem. And, you know, just his generosity of spirit. I can't even imagine how many letters he gets and how many people write him. And he's the reason... I think that I went the science route, that I had the, that I even knew that was a possibility is, you know, I went and started my PhD and then I went to train with him a year or two into my PhD after the medical student study. I should have gone beforehand to get actual training, but anyway, I was, I didn't know, you know, I was so young. I was just like, oh, this looks like a good idea. I'll do it. Um, So he's wonderful. And people, you know, I also, uh, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy by Zindel Siegel and John Williams and um, Teasdale and Teasdale. Mark Williams and John Teasdale, sorry guys, um, they did a wonderful job of bringing John's work into kind of more academic realms. So they wrote a book called Mindfulness-Based Cognitive Therapy. And the way they unpacked mindfulness from a psychological academic perspective was brilliant. Mm-hmm. And it really took off in in psychology. And this wasn't that long ago, you know, maybe, maybe six, seven, eight years ago. And it's really grown. And then, you know, in terms of the popular... I that I'm 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 just surprised by. Yeah. I had no idea I that mean, pr- it would part happen. Part of it is probably just how effective it is. And I think, like you said, is is that you know, be, as it grew in the scientific realm, you know, I would say America's religion is science. The science is convincing, and people want to be healthier and happier. People are miserable. Mm. You know, our economy has gone up so much. Our depression levels have also gone up. Mm. You know, it, there's very clearly no correlation between our wealth and our happiness. And so people are looking for other answers. And this is, you know, the Buddha talked a lot about suffering, but he was saying this is a path to happiness. And so once we make this path accessible and researched, then I think um, people are people want to know about it. I want to ask you a couple of questions about your book, Mindful Discipline. It's a parenting book. Mm-hmm. And I was just wondering if you could speak to what mindful discipline is and, and how it can possibly change one's parenting. Yeah. So that book I wrote because I was struggling so much as a parent. Mm. And I really needed some help. And so I asked a dear friend of mine who's a pediatrician to co-write this book with me okay. because I really wanted to dive into the research and you know, as a single working mom, I can't just go and learn it for its own sake. I have to actually write a book about it because I need to uh, multitask. <laughs> so what I learned from from the research and from studying with this pediatrician is so often the way we discipline is 
the opposite of what our child needs. And so, you know, first of all, our child is developing. So there's developmental stages and there's certain disciplines that are more appropriate for certain ages. But really what the child needs is to feel safe and loved and connected. And that's the first step. And then you can apply discipline and help teach them. I mean, discipline, really, the word means to educate. That's that's the Latin root, mm-hmm. is to educate. So it's not supposed to be punishment or harsh. And, you know, and yet as a mom of this young boy who was relatively challenging, it was like, well, what do you do when he throws his pasta on the ground? You know, you can't just give him a hug and say, I love you, sweetheart. And so I was trying to figure out what are, you know, specific concrete ways to discipline that don't break or disrupt this love and this connection and this trust and this attachment. And so that's really what the book is about is how do you create the bond of safety and love with your child and still help them cultivate boundaries and um, emotional intelligence and, and an understanding of, of right and wrong. Mm-hmm. And has it changed your parenting? The, the It's changed it tremendously. And I'm definitely not a perfect parent and I don't know if one exists. And I still stumble a lot with my son, but I feel like I have the resources now to repair things and that I have a much better sense of, of the direction I want to head. Okay. Well, what do you do if your son is just being just completely impossible? Do you say, like, mommy's going to go meditate right now? <laughs> I was just talking about this earlier this morning. So I do think it's important to first regulate yourself. So when my son is being really difficult and I notice I'm getting um, dysregulated, the first step is to kind of recalibrate my own nervous system and reconnect with my own body and my own heart. And then I can connect with my love for him. And then the discipline is coming out of love Mm. instead of anger. Yeah. And that, it can be the exact same thing, which is you absolutely cannot have second cookie or whatever it is. But instead of doing it like out of my total frustration and wit's end, like just leave me alone, child, it comes from I really love you and it's not good for you. Yeah. And it, it, so it can be the same kind of um, rule, but it comes from a very different place. And we, you know, I take mommy timeouts. I, I absolutely do. Where I don't, I don't believe in timeouts for children. I think it, it's very scary for a child to be like, you go to your room and you're by yourself. They feel so isolated and disconnected. And as I was talking about before, when we feel shamed and isolated and afraid, we can't learn. Mm. So if I want my son to learn not to throw his pasta on the ground, I can't do it out of shame. I can't say, you know, shame on you, child. You're such a bad person for doing that. I have to explain to him from a loving place. And so it's a fine balance. And, you know, I think love and kindness can be strong. They don't have to be weak. Yeah. And they don't have to be passive. Yeah. You know, a lot of people ask me that, well, is mindfulness just going to make us all so passive that all the social injustices of this world are going to get overlooked? And I don't think so. What mindfulness does is lets us see clearly from a place of of equanimity, but also a place of caring. Mm. Um, And then we can act with strength, with strength, but also with kindness. You know, I don't, I don't think kindness is weak. So. Have you had uh, good feedback from parents who've... From- it's been amazing. Yeah. I, the letters I get from, from this book are so extraordinary. And I sometimes get a little bit like, why isn't it working this well for me? You know, like, <laughs> I'm like, I need to go read this book again. Because <laughs> it just, you know, it's like transforming these, these relationships. And, and um, yeah, it's really heartening for me to, to receive that. Because, you know, again, I didn't write the book from a place of a parenting expert. I wrote from a place of like... Oh God, help me! You know, and so I'm. I'm grateful that it's been helpful. How old is your son? 
He's 11. Oh, he's 11. Now. Yeah, he's oh. old. <laughs> he's, <laughs> he's like a preteen, you know, he's playing electric guitar and he just bleached his hair blonde and he wears skinny jeans and he wants to be a DJ now. And so he's teaching me how to like dab and... Wow. Yeah, he's, he's, a, he's a rock star and he's um, his own person. Is he uh, ready to meditate at 11? You know, he occasionally will come and sit with me. I always tell him when I'm going to meditate and I go into my little meditation area and then he's always invited to come. And our agreement is he can leave whenever he wants. So he doesn't have to wait for me to ring the bells. And I would say he comes about, you know, 3% of the time. Oh. <laughs> Um, when his cousins are visiting, he has one cousin who loves to meditate with me for some reason. So his cousin, Nathan always sits with me and, and Jackson sometimes will come when he's there, but I never force it. And I actually really believe that these practices have to come from a genuine desire and a motivation that's from your own heart. And so you can't force someone to do it because the you know, it's not just about paying attention. It's about this whole kind of context of I'm paying attention with an intention and with this attitude. And when you force someone, it's just not there. And so then they're just practicing pathways of feeling resentful and frustrated. And um, so I always, when I'm working with people, you know, I always say to them, only do this if this is what you want, right? Don't ever do this for me or don't ever do this because you feel like you have to, you know, you have freedom. Yeah. So I hope someday he takes it up on himself. My parents both meditate and my dad taught us how to meditate when I was little and I never did it again until after my back surgery. And, um, you know, you find it at your own time. Mm. We, we've spoken about some of the studies that, you, that you've done. What are, is there anything that you're scientifically interested uh, in these days that you're working on? Yeah, there's a lot of things I'm really interested in. Um, one of the things I'm really interested in is joy and positive mind states because so much of the research has focused on how do we use meditation to alleviate depression, anxiety, and these more, um, you know, troublesome pathological uh, emotions. I don't want to say pathological emotions, that's not right, but um, disorders. We've focused on pathology. And I'm really curious about how mindfulness can enhance well-being and enhance positive states and how how inducing or inclining the mind towards joy and towards gratitude actually physiologically changes us and changes our, our entire outlook. And I think what I've seen in my teaching is that when we incline the mind towards joy, for example, I did an exercise in the workshop this morning where I had people just focus on what brings you joy and they asked their partner, what brings you joy? Over and over again, what brings you joy? And they'd say sunshine and ice cream and connection and your smile and this moment and the ocean. And you would feel the energy in the room building. And I was teaching them how to actually be present with that and receive it into their body and let it nourish them and to feel their joy in someone else's joy. That you're not just, it's not just about you and finding what makes you happy. It's also actually seeing someone else become joyful and feeling how good that feels to mm -hmm. witness that. Mm -hmm. It's called mudita, and it's one of the most beautiful practices is this empathic joy in someone else's joy. And what the Dalai Lama says is you will never be depressed again if you practice mudita because there's always one person that's having a good day that you can be like, oh, they're, they're joyful. Okay, I'll take joy in their joy. Wow. So it's a, it's a wonderful practice. And I think the other, the other thing I'm, I'm really interested in is um, in bringing mindfulness to our children. Mm -hmm. I... I don't teach mindfulness to children. I work much better with adults. And yet 
from everything I've learned from neuroplasticity and neuroscience, I mean, to have a worldview that embraces mindfulness and compassion and interconnectedness from age five, mm. it's just so much easier than if you know, we kind of have to undo a bunch of negative teachings when we're in our 30s. And so I, I really am putting a lot of effort into exploring how to integrate mindfulness into education in a way that isn't scary for the parents, like it was this weird Buddhist thing, and in a way that supports our children really um, really feeling safe in the world to become who they're supposed to be. Mm-hmm. You know, As I see my son challenged by so much cultural conditioning and so much technology and um, you know, so much that's accessible on the web that just should not be available to children, they're bombarded with a lot of negative messages and a lot of um, a, a worldview that I don't think is um, that supportive to health. <laughs> And so to give our children a way of seeing the world that is much more supportive to true happiness, I think, is important. Mm. If someone was going to come to Esalen to check out one of your uh, your week or weekend-long uh, offerings, maybe with Dan Siegel and Rick Hansen and Christy Neff or what you've done this this past weekend, where would you recommend them to go on the Esalen property to really experience kind of like the natural beauty and maybe the, the joy that they could get? Mm. You can go anywhere on the Esalen property to find the magic. There's something so sacred about this land and so nourishing about just being in the elements, you know, with the ocean, the sound of the ocean, the majestic sky and the stars and the sunset every night you know everything stops at sunset and everyone gathers and watches it and it's it's how we're supposed to live this life um for me what what always kind of just opens my heart is going into the garden and just seeing not just the flowers that are exquisite and you know huge and and colorful but the the vegetables and how full and healthy and gorgeous they are and just knowing that they're getting picked and that I'm putting them in my body is I, I feel so much more connected to the entire process of life just being on this land. So I encourage people to come. Well, Shauna Shapiro, thank you so much for speaking with us and your, uh, your wisdom and insight about science and meditation and mindfulness and heartfulness is very much appreciated. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Sam. Thank you for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's show is produced in conjunction with Cheryl Franzel, Geraldine Hess, Lori Putnam, Shannon Hudson, and Ian Golden. Our music today is by Corey Gray. The track is Tell the Future. We're approaching our 20th episode, and we're very proud of the show so far. So please, if you're enjoying it, I'm going to ask you to go to iTunes and rate us. It only takes a second. And subscribe. You'll get each new episode the day it comes out. We have some amazing offerings coming up at the Esalen Institute. To see our upcoming retreat schedule, please go to our website, esalen.org, and browse the catalog. I know you'll be enticed. Until next time, be well.